Well, we finally made it to the last few hours of the life of Jesus. It's been a long journey, and it's still going to be a longer one as we finish. Not really. It's not going to go that much longer. And I wanted to see your reactions, and that proved right. Y'all went. I've seen a deer do that from a deer stand. So we've made it this far. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. His whole life is pointed to this moment. He did it willingly, the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that he, would, he did it willingly. In Philippians chapter uh, 2, it says he did it willingly. And he did it because he loves us, and we're going to see that as we go along. But today there was a very painful experience for Jesus. Let me say something to you all. One of the hardest devastations to overcome in a relationship is betrayal. Let's get real. You're going, is this going to be a downer? No, 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 no. But it's going to be a truth that we need to face. One of the hardest devastations to overcome in a relationship, it can be a friendship, it can be a marriage, it can be parents, it can be child. In many relationships, people have faced betrayal. And it's devastating. Devastating. Betrayal can take many forms in a relationship. It can happen in many ways. And we're not going to look at a bunch of them. We're really not going to do that. Because when I said betrayal, I could see that most of y'all went, I know what you're talking about. Okay? Betrayal can take many forms. Here's the tough one. Forgiveness of betrayal with most people is very challenging. To forgive someone who's betrayed you, openly betrayed you, your trust, your confidence, your friendship, your love, your, your, your anything, doesn't matter what it may be that you've given, to forgive that person is the toughest part. And what's sad is many times those who don't forgive are in worse shape than the one who betrayed. As the darkness of the cross approaches, Jesus must now face betrayal from one he loves, one who has walked with him for over three years, one he's eaten with, one he's, he's ministered with, one he's sent out to go minister and has done all kinds of wonderful things, and now he's facing a betrayal of, from this one person. And we all know who it is. Who is it? Judas, okay? Betrayal is treason, absolute disloyalty. Look at that again. Betrayal is treason, absolute disloyalty. It is an action that is meant to overthrow. Now listen to this. It's an action that is meant to overthrow the governing factor or persons in a relationship. You go, what do you mean? We're going to see. The action of betrayal is the highest form of treachery. You're going, wow, you're really hitting on this, because I want to, because we have to know this and understand this part before we can get into this next section. Betrayal is the deceptive action. Here's our definition. Betrayal is the deceptive action of purposely 
breaking faith with one and pledging one's allegiance to a rival for personal gain. Let's read that again. Betrayal is the deceptive action of purposely breaking faith with one and pledging one's allegiance to a rival for personal gain. Now, how would that apply to us? Now, think about it. How would that apply to us? I'll tell you. Anytime that we purposely take our eyes off Christ to move towards a sin or move towards something else, an idol, whatever you want to say, and I mean an idol like whatever it may be in our life, whatever is the most important thing. Whenever we move that way, that is a betrayal because what we've done is purposely broken faith in this moment with Christ to place our faith and our allegiance and our care and our love and our affection, whatever we want to call it, towards something else. Turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And let me say this because it's just burning in my heart. I purposely believe that the church is right there. And I mean in many ways. Now you're saying, what do you mean the church? I'm talking about the church that thinks it's the church is right there. And many Christians are struggling with this. Now those who are solid in their faith, it's not a big struggle. We have our moments, but nothing major. But the church is betraying the Lord by running after all kinds of things. I'm done. Here we go. Got off my soapbox. Quarter's over within the meter. Now let's go back to the Word. Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, Say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it as he just as he has told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved, and to say to him, one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is, is to go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he would, had not been born. That's like, how would you like to hear that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that this hard passage, this grievous passage, can be a great encouragement. And may our eyes and our hearts see it that way this morning. Grant us wisdom as we go forward, Lord, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the Passover preparation. Here we go. The setting is this. Look at the first verse 12. First part. On the first day of unleavened bread. Okay, 
Here's the setting. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread would mean the 15th day of Nisan. You're going, okay. But to some, it means something, okay? The day following Passover. But the added description of the day when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed makes it clear that the 14th day of Nisan is really what is meant. You're going, is there a mistake there? No. The entire eight-day celebration, including the Passover, was referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread by many. If you look at Matthew, you look at uh, Mark here, you look at Luke, and even part of, of uh, John, it all points to that. The whole feast, which the Passover was included on that very first day, is meant. So there's no mistake in the Word of God there. Now, here's the preparation. Look at the last part of verse 12. Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, Jesus said to this, this to him. Jesus and the 12 were probably in Bethany, if you look at verse 13, okay? Since the Passover had to be eaten within the walls of the city. The Passover, by rabbinical law, had to be eaten in the city of Jerusalem. You couldn't eat it in Bethany. You couldn't eat it outside the city. You couldn't even stand outside the wall and, and share it. You had to be in the city according to rabbinical law. Jesus knew this. Jesus was going to honor that. So what did he do? He sent people to go prepare inside the city while he was out in Bethany, as we saw a couple weeks ago. Now, the disciples asked Jesus where in Jerusalem uh, they were to go and make the preparation. Now, here's a little hint. In Luke chapter 22, verse 8, Luke tells us that the two disciples were Peter and John. Now, remember we learned two years back, which you probably won't remember, okay? But we learned two years back that Mark got this information from Peter. That's how he wrote this gospel. It's basically Peter's gospel, okay? And even a lot of Peter's in, in, uh, in the book of Luke also. Now, he says, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Now, this is all the setting up of what's going on. He says, follow him. Let's look at it. Verse 13, and he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. Now, he says, a man will eat you. Eat you. <laughs> I, my mind is moving so fast. Let me slow down. <sighs> yeah, here we go. Everybody breathe with me. <sighs> okay, good. A man will meet you, okay? It gives us the understanding that Jesus could possibly have already made the arrangements. You ever thought about that? Most of the time, you hear, oh, he gave him a prophetic word. Maybe, but more likely it's this, okay? For where they were to eat the Passover meal, it says, a man's going to meet you, and he's going to be carrying a pitcher of water. Now, this was a clear sign for Peter and John. Why? Because the man would, and it says, the man will lead him to the house where the owner had a guest room. Why is this so big of a deal? Because a man didn't carry a pitcher of water. It was a woman's job. Men would carry the, 
the uh, skins of water or skins of wine, but the woman carried the water jug, the pitcher. Each and every day, she would go to the, to the well, draw the water that they needed, and bring it back. So it was a clear picture, a clear sign that that's the guy we need to talk to. Okay? Now, why the secrecy? Why would this already be set up for this reason? First, because it hid the location from Judas so it would be impossible for Judas to know where they were going to eat the Passover. You ever thought about that? Jesus made the arrangement ahead of time. He'd already secured it. I personally believe that. And many theologians do also. Many scholars believe that he made the arrangements ahead of time. He knew what the man was going to be carrying. Now we can go, we can get really super spiritual and say prophetic. Yeah, okay, maybe it is. We won't exactly know. But by the evidence, and you read the Gospels, Jesus may, already made the arrangement. He talked to him. Most believe, you want to get real technical, most believe it was Mark's house. Because the Jerusalem church later on meets in Mark's house. So many believers already set up. Jesus made that arrangement. He just told Peter and John to go there, find this guy, and he's going to show you. Now here's the second th theory, okay? If he didn't make the arrangements ahead of time, it was custom in Jerusalem because, remember we saw it went from a, probably uh, 50,000 or more in the city to about 250,000 because of Passover and the feast? But it was custom, and it was even pushed by the rabbis that if a, a, a stranger or a journeyman came in to the city for Passover, if you had a spare room, you, you need to give it to them. So if they asked you, you couldn't refuse. You had to give it to them and let them celebrate the Passover inside the city walls. Now, again, let's go over that first one. Why, was this, why the care and why the secrecy? Because of this. It was to hide the location from Judas so it was impossible for him to reveal it. You'll see why in a minute. Here's the second reason why the secrecy. Jesus wanted to control the environment of the Passover meal. This was the most important meal eaten in the history of the world. This meal changed everything. This meal identified Christ as the Passover lamb. Finally, it's going to do it. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Exodus 12 points to the Passover lamb. Matthew chapter 121 said that, that he's going to save his people from their sins. He's the lamb of God. This is the beauty of it. This is the encouragement that he's the lamb going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins. We've heard this over and over again, and most Christians get kind of like, okay, we know this. No, we don't. And I'm going to say it this way. If we knew this, if this was part of our life, we would never betray the Lord. Look at verse 18. As they were reclining at the table, okay, they've made it. They're in there. Jesus knew where it was. He brings the disciples there because John and Peter have already prepared, brings the disciples there. They're reclining at the table. Now, you all know what that means. Most of you don't. If you don't, let me give you a quick thing. It was, very, it was customary that they would recline. They would usually put their feet kind of in back of them, 
and their front of the body, they would recline on one arm and they would eat this way, especially the Passover. But it was really contrary to how they were supposed to eat the Passover. They were supposed to eat the Passover standing up with their staff in hand. Remember? In the book of Exodus. But we never think about that, so it has changed over the years. So they were reclining and eating. It was a very formal, to recline that way meant most likely it was a very formal dinner. You all still with me? Okay. Now, here's the, here's the tough part about it. It was a very somber mood. You know, it's one of those dinners you just don't want to go to. Because why? Something's going on. You know it. You can feel it. And everybody's kind of like. There's no talking. Not much going on. The mood was very somber. Why? And Jesus didn't help it. Luke chapter 22 verse 15 says this. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Well, the lamb doesn't taste as good now. You had to bring that up again, Lord? Golly. And then he makes it worse. But between this verse here, okay, between verse 17 and 18, okay, let's look at it real quick. And it was evening when he came with the 12. And as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, between those two verses, something happened. We'll just put some perspective in it. Now, when you came into a house, what would you normally happen in those times? You don't get it in most houses, probably no houses nowadays. They'd wash your feet. The servants would wash your feet. During, between 17 and 18, John puts the second part in there. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It says, he takes his outer garment off, wraps a towel around him, okay, and he takes a basin of water, and he washes the disciples' feet, and he dries them. The sad part about it is this. He washes the betrayer's feet. We all know that, right? But what's so, okay, man, how can he do that? Because it already tells us that Satan has already entered um, Judas's heart and even places in his mind, uh, John says, places in his mind to betray him already. So he's, Judas is already in the throes of the betrayal. He's sitting there. Jesus is going along. Peter's going, you'll never wash my feet, Lord, yea, verily. If, well, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, then... You have no part of me. Okay, then, Lord, yea, verily. That's King James. Yea, verily, Lord, wash my whole body. And Jesus says, no, those that have been clean and taken a bath don't need their whole body washed, just their feet. Wonderful lesson in there. We won't look at it today. Then he comes up to Judas. What was Judas thinking? What was Jesus thinking? You know what I think he was thinking? He had great love for Judas. Because this was a chance. 
Jesus washes his feet and serves him as a servant, the very one that's going to betray him. It's already done it, but eventually he's going to close it out in the garden with a kiss on his cheek. Rabboni. Sees him. Betrays him. And Jesus serves him and washes his feet. Remember, betrayal is the deceptive action of purposely breaking faith with the one and with one and pledging one's allegiance to a rival for personal gain. That's betrayal. That's what Judas had done and was doing. And Jesus washed his feet. Here's the announcement. Look at verse 18 again. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Verse 19. They began to be grieved. Here's the second grieve. Okay? That's terrible English. But here's the second grieve. First, he says, I'm going to go suffer. Second, one of you guys is going to betray me. That's like a double whammy right there on the dinner. Think about it. And he reclined at the table, and Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved, and they say to him, by, one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. Now let's look at this whole section. We're going to be finish up a little quicker today probably, maybe. No promises. Okay? He continues this somber moment by saying, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The word betray in the Greek means this. It's a compound word, paradidomai. It means para, to side over, over to. Remember we've seen paraclete, on, to bring alongside? Para means on the side, okay? So don't say that when you go out to a restaurant. I like my dressing para. It was a joke. It was one of my best ones. Come on. All right. Didomai means this. It means to give. So it means to deliver over up to the power of someone. It means to pull them aside, push them aside, and deliver them up to somebody else because you don't want to go with them. Further, Jesus identified the betrayer as one who is eating with me. Now imagine that. The other disciples are going, what? And he says, yes, yeah, one of you guys you're eating with. One of the ones that is eating with me. So it's one of the 12. It's not those that have been serving us. It's one of the 12. One of you 12 are betraying me. You're eating with me at the table. Now, to betray a friend after eating a meal with him was and still is regarded as the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. Let me show you a couple of things. Look at Psalm. If you want to turn with me, or you can read up on the screen, Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14. Look what the psalmist said. Look what David said. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me that I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I, I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together and walked in the house of God in the throng. Think that describes Judas? Yeah. Look at the next one. Watch this. Psalm 49.1 says this. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, 
who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Where did that come from? Look at the next one. This is what Jesus said. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But is that the scripture may be fulfilled? He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus gave three clues to who it was. Verse 18, he says, this one is eating with me. Verse 18 and 20, he says, he was one of the 12. And then the last one, verse 20, says, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. In fact, I believe it's John's gospel, it says, he dips and Jesus gives him, gives Judas the morsel. And he says, go, go do what you got to do. Now think about this. Until the very end, Jesus hid from the disciples the identity of his betrayer. For he wanted to give G Judas every opportunity to turn from his sin. See, we don't look at it this way. We think of Judas as the absolute nastiest human being on earth. I mean, it became a, a, a reproach to call somebody a Judas. But Jesus, have you ever thought about this? That Jesus, all the way through, had given him a chance over and over not to do this. He washed his feet. He said, one of you is going to betray me. Judas could have said, I'm not going to do this. He says, one of you that's eating with me. One of you that's dipping in the, in the, in the, the bread with me, in the bowl. And Judas still did it. But the love of God was there going, you don't have to do this. You don't need to do this. You're going, but then how? We'll see, I promise you. How is it going to happen? If Judas doesn't betray him, how is it going to happen? Remember, betrayal is the deceptive action of purposely breaking faith with one and pledging one's allegiance to a rival for personal gain. Judas sold him, as we saw two weeks ago, for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. All right, let's look at verse 21, and we're going to wrap it up. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. For the Son of Man is going to go just as it is written about him. This is how it was going to happen. Behind Judas' betrayal, a divine purpose is being carried out. You ever thought about that? Even behind the betrayal, God's purpose is being carried out. Jesus was going to go just as the Scripture said to the cross. He was going to go. But if Judas, if Judas said, no, I'm not going to do this and repented of it, God would have still accomplished his purpose. How? We don't know. But the scripture just tells us right there, he was going to die. He had to. It was going to happen, whether Judas betrayed him or not. So remember that, because Judas had a chance. All the way to the very end, he had the chance to turn. That's the love of God. God gives that to us. When we are turning away from him, he's always calling us back. Always. 
And we take it so flippantly sometimes because we think, oh, okay, well, I sinned. Okay, great. Lord, forgive me. It's not that flippant. The mercy and love of God is so holy, so holy and so righteous that our flippant, unrighteous attitudes sometimes will not secure that. And I'll just leave it there. Because it takes a repented heart, a repentive heart to turn. It takes realizing that this is sin. God, forgive me. Then he looks at Judas and he says this, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The woe pronounced on Judas marks his unredeemed heart and his personal responsibility for his action. That right there, that last part of it, when he says that, he knew that Judas was gonna be, was, wasn't going to turn. He was going to betray him. He was going to finish what he started. But that's a heavy statement. And it's been used through the centuries. You keep that up, you're going to wish you were never born. Y'all still with me? Okay. We may want to defend Judas by arguing this. Well, all he wanted was to see Jesus step into his messianic authority and, step and, and, and set up his messianic kingdom and redeem Israel and bring him back from Roman power and Roman control. That's all he wanted. I mean, you can't fault him for that. May I also say this. Well, I mean, gosh, that's just terrible. He was a result of predestination. Meaning what? It was already predetermined that he was going to do it. He had no choice. He was a robot. He was just accomplishing what God wanted. And God sent him to hell over it. You ever thought about that one too? Judas wasn't a martyr and he wasn't a robot. He was a responsible human being who had made his own decisions, but in so doing, now listen to this, he made his own decisions, but in so doing, he fulfilled God's purpose. So what does it have to do with us? Well, let me show you something. Dr. Warren Wearsby said this. He must not be made into a, either a hero or a helpless victim of merciless predestination. Judas was lost for the same reason millions are lost today. He did not repent of his sins and believe on Jesus Christ. Betrayal is a deceptive action of purposely breaking faith with one and pledging one's allegiance to a rival for personal gain. Judas pledges allegiance to his own wants and desires. The ultimately led, or they, this ultimately led to betraying the word of God for his own selfish desire or purpose or need. But we go, what? okay, great, I'm not Judas. Don't make me feel like I'm Judas. 
I'm not Judas. No, you're not. But betrayal, we got to remember something. What do we see in this? Betrayal is forgivable. Meaning what? When we move any time away from God's purpose, when we move and, and, and do things we purposely know that God calls sin, we're betraying God. We're selling him out for our own personal gain because we're going to get something from this. Sleeping around. Sex before marriage. Name it. Lying. Greed. Pick them out. Anything. Anger. You go, oh, anger we don't. Yeah, we do. You ever been angry? In that moment, there's what? A very personal satisfaction in that moment. It's afterwards that we feel bad, usually. And if you don't, then you may see, need to check and see whether you know Jesus or not. But whatever it is, it's our own personal gain. When we move from him, we sell him out and move and give our allegiance to something else. And we take his authority and push it out of our lives and give our authority, give authority to whatever we're going after. This is not a game. And I hope if anybody's watching online, you can get this. It's not a game. You're saying, but we're Christians. We're not unsaved. Christians need to hear this more, I really believe, than the unsaved. Because it comes down to what? Who are you serving? Are we saying that we serve God and we love Jesus and we come here on Sundays or we go come on Wednesday, whatever it may be, and we're, but we're playing a game? And I'm not correcting, I'm not rebuking, I'm encouraging, I'm trying to pull this forward. I'm telling myself this. I hear pastors all the time falling. Nowadays, they can't get enough pastors to pastor churches. Where are you with God today? Is there anything that you sold out or betrayed somebody or something? You know the toughest part is when we do do the betrayal, is asking for forgiveness of the person that we betrayed and then the persons that were part of that betrayal. You know, one of the neatest things I ever saw, now don't get me wrong and don't read into this, no one, was a brother that stumbled and fell morally and stood before a church the tears coming down his face and asked the whole church to forgive him. The whole church. wasn't against them to say, but it was. Because he was a believer. And the church embraced him. Because he betrayed the Lord and he betrayed the trust of the church. And he went through a wonderful restorative process. And he's back in the ministry and doing good. And you know what happened to that church? We would call it revival, but you know what? There was a, such an encouragement that the presence of God was so prevalent in that church so, for so long because it started an understanding that this is not just about me anymore. My spiritual walk and how I live affects everybody else in that body. 
affects everybody else in my family. But we're so prideful that we don't want that to, we don't want to lower our pride, lay our pride aside and confess. What do you think was keeping Judas? You think it was the 30 pieces of silver? No, it was pride. Betrayal is the deceptive action of purposely breaking faith with one and pledging one's allegiance to a rival for personal gain. Where have you pledged your allegiance? 